to turn with me in your Bibles once again to 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to tell you, man, from the conversations in Sunday school to the conversations in the various prayer rooms, everything works together. God lines it all up, uh, and, and, and you'll see that in just a few moments. Uh, last Sunday, we began the fourth chapter of 1 John, and we looked at the first six verses. This morning, I want to read to your hearing verses 7 through 21. However, we're only going to examine verses 7 and 8. Uh, in my preparation this week, I had originally planned to try to tackle all 14 verses, but the more that I studied, the richer and the fuller the passage became, and I said, you know, we're not in a sprint, so we need to take our time and fully consider and draw out everything that we can that God has for us in this passage. As I've said every time, just about every every sermon that I've preached thus far out of 1 John, I've talked about how John's intent for this epistle is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The purpose of this letter is to help the Christian have certainty concerning their salvation. And we've seen how John has given a series of spiritual tests throughout this epistle to help assure our hearts that we belong to Christ and also to help us discern the genuine Christian from the false. The first test was the, first, was the test of belief. Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? Not what the world says, but what the Bible says. Are you obeying the commandments of God? That was another test, the obedience test. Not perfectly. None of us are going to obey the Lord perfectly, but are you obeying the commands of God? The third test is the love test. This is the third time in this, in this passage will be the third time we've seen this love test. We were tested with it in the second chapter. Second time we were tested with it was in the third, and this is the third appearance of this Love test. The third test that John tests us with that tests our faith concerning love. And the majority of this chapter, of chapter four, is made up of this love test. Is your life marked by love? Can you see a difference in your life in the area of love prior to Christ and after Christ? Can you see a difference in the area of love in your life from the time you were converted to now? This will be the most searching of all the tests that have been put before us in this epistle. The first two were convicting and encouraging. This one will be encouraging, but also very, very convicting. And I want you to examine your own heart and your own life and the way that you love people to see if there is true faith there. None of us are going to do it perfectly, but only true Christians love the way God intends. So look with me at 1 John chapter 4. I want to read, begin reading at verse 7 all the way to the end of the chapter and speak to you upon God is love. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the father have sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed that the love that God hath to us, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, your precious, holy word. God, we ask of you at this time, remove all distractions. By the power of the Holy Spirit, take captive all attentions, bring them into your focus, bring them before your throne. God, remove me out of the way. Speak to your people this day. Make this completely incomprehensible subject of the love of God understandable to us weak and feeble-minded servants. For all this we ask in Jesus' mighty and precious name, amen. As a way of introduction, I would like to begin a long way from 1 John. By way of introduction and setting our minds in the proper perspective to embrace the text, allow me to take us back, way back, to the sixth day of creation. On the sixth day of creation, God said, let us make man in our own image, Genesis 1.26. Now God is the eternal spirit. Being made in God's image is not physical. It has to do with the immaterial part of us. And the root of the Hebrew word for image seems to mean to carve out. So it literally means let us carve out man. Let us shape man to our image. In other words, let's replicate ourselves in man. Let's shape him and form him to be reflective of us. Man then was created in, that, in an exalted fashion. 
Mankind was created to be like God, though not like the prosperity preaching folks like to say with their little God's doctrine. We don't have the power to speak things into existence. We don't have the power to raise the dead. We don't have the power to heal people with the touch of our hands. All of that comes from God and resurrection doesn't happen on this side of the grave anymore. Christ was the first one to be resurrected from the grave and no one else is going to be resurrected till it's time for the judgment seat. But man is made in the image of God. So what does that mean? It means man is a relational being. The, the Bible tells us that God is a trinity. And the trinity was always a trinity, is always a trinity, will always be a trinity. God by nature exists in fellowship and relationship within the trinity. So let's make man, God said, with a capacity for relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 says, Man is the image and glory of God. God created no other creature in his image. I don't care how much you love your cat Fluffy. I don't care how much you love a dog. God did not create any other creature in his image but mankind. And when you talk about man created in the image of God, and what makes up relationships, you talk about things like self-consciousness, which only man possesses. Man has the capacity to understand himself. Man has the capacity to think abstractly because that's necessary in relationships. Man has the capacity to appreciate beauty, to feel emotion, to be morally conscious, to think, to reason, and to acquire wisdom. All of that so as to have the ability to personally connect, to personally relate to other people, and especially to relate to God. To be able to love others and to love God. So the core meaning behind God created us in His image can be summed up like this. Personal relationships. Man is made with the capacity to love, the capacity to love others, and the capacity to love God. And within that frame, within that frame of love, there is fellowship, care, sharing of thoughts, attitudes, and experiences that makes the love the makes love the richest of all human experiences. The image of God then is the capacity for personal relationships would come down to giving and receiving love. God himself never existed in isolation. He never existed in some cut-off form. He always existed in the fullness of a family-like reality in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father has never been without the Son. The Son has never been without the Father, and neither have ever been without the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has never been without either one of them as well. And God so designed us so that he would develop man not only to be able to relate to his own fellow man, but to be able to relate to him. And so there, that still resides within the human heart all these thousands of years since creation. All men and women long to love and to be loved. We all long to be in loving relationships as well as a loving relationship with God. And in fact, if you think about it, love is influenced 
just about the, the, the attribute, the, the cry for love has influenced just about everything else in society. It's, it's, it's themed more songs, more books, more films, more literature, more poems than anything else. People long to love and to be loved. We long to find that perfect love. And it's because we have been made in the image of God to do just that. We want so much that perfect love relationship. And that understanding draws us all the way back from, from Genesis to 1 John 4. And it's in 1 John 4, 7 through 21, which is the rest of the, this wonderful chapter, God, John presents for us a study of perfect love. It's not very hard to understand, and it unfolds with such beauty and simplicity, but yet very, very, very deep. And so we're going to work our way through it and be in, greatly enriched by it. So look with me at verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8. And we're going to see the command of love, the command to love, the cause of love, and finally the characteristics of true and false lovers. Look what it says in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Take, let's take a moment to think about that word beloved. You know, we all know, we don't, I'm not a Greek scholar. None of us are in here are Greek scholars, but we're all vaguely familiar with the Greek word agape. That deep, self-sacrificing love. Well, the word here, uh, and John, by, by the way, uses that word more than any other apostle. And it's used in, uh, in, in, this, in this epistle many, many, many times. That's why John is known as the apostle of love. No one has a handle on the love of God quite like the apostle John. So in that, that the, the Greek word there is a, is, is a play, is a form of the word agape, and it, it, it's agapetoi, which means divinely loved ones. Beloved means divinely loved ones. So this same word is also used as the, when the Father is speaking of Christ in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus was baptized. Jesus comes up and it says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the same word used by the Father to describe Christ is used of the readers of this epistle. The Apostle Paul used the word in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Meaning that the believer has been accepted into God's love. So the beloved of God are loved so deeply and sacrificially loved by God and have been accepted into his deep sacrificial love. So it says, beloved, let us love one another. So the Holy Spirit through John's pen is saying, because we have been deeply and sacrificially and undeservingly loved by God, now we must love one another. Those who have been bought by the precious blood of Christ have an obligation to love as part of your reasonable service, Romans 12, verse 1. The Christian is commanded to love all people, even those that are difficult to love. We are commanded to love those that, are, that our flesh may desire to hate. You know, there's been a resurgence of interest as of late in a well-known serial killer by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. Netflix recently released a series depicting his life and those horrendous murders that he committed. 
And something that has caused a huge uproar online has been the subject of Dahmer's profession of faith in Jesus Christ prior to his own murder in prison. Now, as horrendous and vile as his crimes were, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to wash all of that away. We just sang that the vilest offender Can you imagine that there are people that are wanting that man to be in hell right now, burning hotter every day, and a lot of those people call themselves Christian? I mean, a law, I can understand a lost person, in, in, in one breath they'll say they don't believe in God, they don't believe in the existence of hell, but then at the same time they'll say, well, if it exists, I hope Jeffrey Dahmer's there. I can sort of understand that because also with part of being created in the image of God, we're created in His image to cry out for want to see justice be done. We are a people that we're created to naturally want to see justice be done. So I can almost uh, understand the lost man with that, with, with, that, with that thought. But I don't understand the Christian. I don't understand the Christian that says there is no way that Jeffrey Dahmer could have truly been repentant. How do you know except for you could have looked inside his own heart? And furthermore, why do you want him to be there? Why would you not want him to be repentant? It's like Jonah and what we're studying in uh, Sunday school. In all those 10 weeks that I preached through Jonah, Jonah did not want to take the good news of, of repentance to the Ninevites. He wanted the justice and the judgment of God to come down upon them. Even if it meant that he died himself, he hated them so much. How can people of God hate anyone? It is not to be made up of our nature. Why would a person not want even the, why would a Christian not want even the vilest of offender to come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ? Do you think that God is not able to save even the vilest of sinners? He was able to save one of the vilest sinners ever recorded in Scripture. Listen to some of his words, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Folks, I don't know what you know about the life of the apostle Paul, but he won't just standing outside of where the saints were meeting with signs saying, hey, uh, the church is wrong. Christians are wrong. No. Under the authority of the Pharisees, the apostle Paul arrested and killed Christians. He stood there and he held the coats of the men and he watched while Stephen was stoned. And he cheered them on as they did it. But he said, for I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. By the grace of God, He didn't leave me where He found me. By the grace of God, I am born again. 
Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Because we all need to keep in mind the old saying, there but for the grace of God go I. If it weren't, For the grace of God in the restraining power of the Holy Spirit holding us back and keeping us from being as vile as we possibly could be. And God opening our eyes and granting us faith and repentance in Christ. We could have been a Jeffrey Dahmer. We could have been an Adolf Hitler. We could have been a Charles Manson. And if you have truly been redeemed by God, then the most loving, you should be, we should be the most loving of all people on this earth. And our greatest desire should be that all of those that are outside of Christ get drawn in. We have an obligation to love all people, even those that we don't, even those that are hard to love. We think we we hear people say that you know that person's hard to love. Hey, so are you sometimes. Get off your high horse. Hey, I don't want to love them because they don't deserve it. Hey, neither do we. None of us deserve the love that God has bestowed upon us. But we have an obligation to love all people, especially those of the household of faith. And that's what we see several times in this passage. You cannot in the same breath profess to love God and in the same time hate anyone, especially a fellow believer. Paul and Barnabas disagreed over whether or not they should take John Mark with them on a missionary journey. Barnabas said bring him while Paul said leave him. They couldn't come to an agreement so they parted ways. Barnabas took John Mark, Paul took Silas. They went on separate missionary journeys, but we don't read where they fit, that they actually fell out with one another. We don't read that there was hard feelings. They just decided to part company and go do missionary work in a different fashion with different people. And we know that God blessed both. But all parties still loved one another in the Lord. Christians are commanded to love. Look what it, look, look, look what it says again. Look back in chapter 3. Verse 23, look what it says. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he gave commandment. Then again, here in chapter 4, beloved, let us love one another. And then again in, in, in verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. In the Gospels, Jesus summed up the law He summed up the commandments like this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we compile that to what Jesus says in uh, John chapter 15, verses 9 and 14. Listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So you 
put those two together and what do you get? We are to love God first and foremost, above and before anything or anyone else. And we are to love our neighbors. We're to love the world as we love ourselves. And we're to love the church like Jesus loved the church. And one of the best and simplest ways to show someone you desire to show someone that you love them is just to be around them, to desire to be around them. And that's why it should always be within the heart of every person that names the name of Christ to want to be around their fellow brothers and sisters. I go back to the one who, who, who likes to say, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church or I'm a Christian and I'm, I'm not a member of a church anywhere. They're a liar. Look what it says in verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For how can, for how can he love God whom he has not seen and, but it, hate the one who he has seen? doesn't make sense it doesn't hold water and you hear people say well i don't want to go to church because i don't want to be around a bunch of hypocrites why not you go to work with them i've said that before you don't mind going to work with them you don't mind going to walmart with them you don't mind going to places like theme parks and sporting events and highly populated vacation spots where they're all over top of you you don't mind going and doing all of that why can't you go to church with them then to that self-deceived false convert that says they supposedly love Jesus Christ, but that his church is full of a bunch of hypocrites, be very careful how you talk about the bride of Christ. This is a command that comes from the top. This isn't a suggestion. Beloved, let us love one another. Love one another when you feel like it. Love one another when you're going to get something out of it. Love one another when the other person deserves it. Love one another when the other person does something for you. That's not that agape love. That agape love goes beyond what that person does or says, goes beyond and attacks the need and shows that love because that person loves. What if God just loved us when he felt like it? What if he just listened to your prayers when he felt like it? So if you are in Christ, God commended his love toward you and that while you were yet a sinner, while you were at enmity with God, while you were an enemy of God, God sent his son to die for his enemies. Therefore, we are to love the other children of God. Point number two. Again, look at seven and eight. It says, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now drop down to the end of verse 8. He, he that knoweth not God, for God is love, the cause of love. Love is from God, and God is love. Again, thinking about that word that's used there, agape, the deep self-sacrificing love. It is rooted, rooted in a love for others. What does it look like? What does it look like? We're, we're, we give a good, a good picture of what the love of uh, God looks like in the cross. And it's described for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul writes, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. 
Don't be like the person who, who, who wants to make it known everything that they've done for the church or for anybody else of that matter just so they can get a pat on the back for it. I've known too many people like that. They brag and they brag and they brag. Well, that's their reward. They'll have nothing to lay at the feet of Christ. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Whoa! That means to think more of somebody else than I do my own self? That You mean that is the type of love that God requires of His children? That is completely contrary to the love of the, that the world promotes. A love for self. Self-gratification is the root of all worldly love. Doesn't matter if there's multiple people in a relationship. It's all about who's going to get what out of the deal. But it says, look not every man to his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Don't be so consumed with what's going on in your own life that you forget about your brothers and your sisters. There may be a need, there may be a desire that you have the capability to meet and take care of, but you don't know it because you're too self-consumed. God says, don't be that way. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. God and Christ in eternity past were Exactly that. They were God. There was no uh, greater God and no equal, no lesser God. They were equal in the Godhead or equal in the Godhead. And Jesus didn't say, well, I'm God. I'm not going to lower myself to go become a man and live among men. No. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. The second person of the Godhead, God the Son, the Son of God, humbled himself to serve. So why is it there are so few servants in the church? Why is it that you have, when something needs to be done, you have, or something that should be done, yeah, we really ought to do that. We really ought to get that done. But nobody takes initiative to do it. Nobody takes the thought process to say, hey, let's do it, except for about four or five people. You sit around and you wait for everybody else to do the things that need to get done. When God says that Every one of his people should have this servant mindset. Should have this humble servant mindset. Thinking about the needs of others before you think about the needs of yourself. Wow, that's radical thinking. That is radical thinking. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. Just as God is life, as we're told in Psalm 36, verse 9, and God is the source of eternal life, we read all through the New Testament, and just as God is the source of light in 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 through, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, He is also the source, the author, and the originator 
of love. Look at it again. The end of verse 8. Well, let me back up to verse 7. Let love one another for love is from God and God is love. God is love. He is the author and originator of love. Love does not define God. God defines love. God by nature is love. God did not learn to love. God did not develop loving tendencies. God does not merely do loving things. God is love. It is his nature. And people try to impose upon God a human view of who God should be. And you hear people say, if God is so loving, then why the problem of evil? If God is so loving, why is there evil in the world? God permits evil to exist to provide the backdrop to display His goodness, His kindness, His mercy, and His love. I've given you this analogy before. Last night, you were able to walk outside your house and see the stars in the sky. Right now, if you walk outside, you can't see them because of the blinding light of the sun. In order to see the beauty of those stars, there has to be that backdrop of the night sky. In order to appreciate the beauty and the mercy and the grace and the love of God, that's why God permits evil for now. There's one day there's going to come a time when it's going to be eradicated. And we're going to be able to appreciate it in the fullness of who God is. There won't be the veil of sin any longer. We will appreciate and adore God for who He truly is. And they also says, well, if God is so loving, why do bad things happen to good people? Think back to that message that I preached with our Lord's conversation with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, well, why do you, why do you call me good? Jesus was not saying that he was not good. He is the epitome of good. He is the definition of good. He is God. But what Jesus was calling into question is that is our human, human understanding of what good is. Our understanding of good, what we call good, is messed up. Now, I know we like to hang, well, he's a good man, she's a good woman, that's a good boy, that's a good girl. We like to hang those terms, but none of us are good. There is truly only one that is good, and that is God. The natural man, apart from the redemptive work of Christ applied to his heart, is a sinner that repeatedly, over and over and over, all day, every day, commits high treason against the very God that made him. And the Christian is the same exact way when he or she does not yield to the Holy Spirit that is within them. You know, there's, a, there's, there's people that sit on a pew their whole life and they'll say, well, you know, I never will do such and such. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. You get in the flesh, there's no telling what you will do. You will only be as obedient to the commands of God as you yield to the Holy Spirit within you. You hearken to His Word, you stay in His Word, and you yield to His command. Any of us could fall at any time. Any of us, you, you might, any of us could fall to the temptation that the devil may hurl, hurl our way at a particular time. So the question should be not, should, should, should not be why do bad things happen to good people? 
It should be since all of us by nature are bad, why does God permit anything good to happen? The answer, because God is love. Because God is love. And the fact that God is love explains a number of things from the in the biblical worldview. First thing it does is it explains why God created. God created mankind for that relationship. In eternity past, within the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, God the Father purposed as a love gift to God the Son a people. John chapter 6, verse 39 says, Now this is the will of Him who sent me, that all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but will raise Him up on the last day. Though God existed in perfect solitude and perfect communion within the Godhead, He created a race of beings out of which He would love and redeem those that turn to Him in love forever. The reality that God is love explains His providence. The reality that God is love explains His providence, how He works together, how He orchestrates all circumstances of life in all of their wonder, in all of their beauty, and yes, even all of their difficulty to reveal the many evidences of His love. We're all familiar with Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together. All things. All things. Not just some things. Not just the, the things that give us the warm and fuzzies in our stomach. But all things work together for good. For whose good? For God's eternal good. For them who that love God, to them are called to His purpose. His love explains the divine plan of redemption. If God only operated on the basis of His law, every one of us would be in hell right now. And justly so. But His love provided a remedy for sin through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, speaking of Mary, and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And God has a general love for all mankind. We've talked about this many times, about God's common grace. God expresses His love and goodness through His common grace. Matthew 5, 45, For He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's why the lost and the saved can experience this beautiful day that's outside. That's why the lost and the saved can experience things like music and loving relationships and food and the beauty of creation. God showers those blessings down upon all mankind so that they would point people to glorify Him. Another thing that God's general love for mankind is displayed, God delays final judgment against unrepentant sinners. What does that mean? That means when they sin, they don't immediately die and go to hell. Listen to this. Listen to these words in Psalm 50. Psalm 50. And it would probably do, you, do us all some good to 
commit this particular passage to memory. Psalm chapter 50, beginning at verse 16. But unto the wicked, God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou should take my covenant in your mouth? Who are you to profess or to talk about how God should and should not be when you think nothing of him? Verse 17, seeing that thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind you. You think nothing of my word. You think nothing of the things of God. How dare you think that you get to tell God how he should be? Verse 18, when thou sawest a thief, then thou cons consentest with him and hast been partakers with adulteries. Thou givest thy mouth to evil and thy tongue frameth deceit. That's this world that calls evil good and good evil. Verse 20, thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thou, thine own mother's son. But listen to this, listen to verse 21. These things that hast thou done and I kept silent and thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself I've said this many times do not do not mistake the mercy of God for the approval of God just because you did something and you got away with it does not mean that God condones it so many people out there in the world commit sin after sin after sin day in and day out in their hatred for God. They deny God. They want nothing to do with God. And they think that his silence means that he doesn't exist. They've got an awakening company. They've got a rude awakening coming if they do not repent. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you to pieces and there be none to deliver. We're told something similar in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 30, says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding all men everywhere that they should repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed. What does that mean? He has set in his counsel. He has fixed a day that it is not going to be moved. It's not going to be changed. There is a day coming that is fixed, that is not going to be changed, that it's not going to be rescheduled. There is a fixed day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So that is one of the ways that God manifests his kindness and his goodness to unrepentant sinners is that when they sin, they don't immediately die. And we see that we see that love manifested as well in the uh, the myriad of warnings that we see all through the uh, the scriptures that's given to the lost. And you see God's general love for all of mankind that He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. R. A. read to us from Ezekiel chapter eighteen this morning. 
I want to pick it up in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. He says, do I have pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Is it not that he should turn from his ways and live? And if you read that passage, you can almost feel the urgency of God where he says, turn ye and repent. It, God will not take any pleasure in one person going to hell. He will be glorified in it, but he will not take pleasure in it. And along with the warnings, God extends his love to every part of the world through the proclamation of the gospel. For it is the response, he has commissioned the church with this responsibility. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But that is that general love is limited to this life only. After death, the unrepentant sinner will experience God's final wrath and final judgment for all eternity in hell. So where the world says, get all you can, however you can, with whoever you can, whenever you can, all that, you, you live one time, live it up. The Bible says you live one time. Don't take God's mercy for granted. Receive, embrace all the mercy of God that you can. And then there's the one that says, well, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Again, none of us are good. None of us are good. God doesn't send good people to hell. Sinners go to hell. Their own personal love of wickedness and hatred for God sends them there. The better question is, why does God allow anyone to go to heaven? Because God is love. And God has a special, perfect, eternal love that he lavishes on everyone who believes in him. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is love and he pours out that love pressed down, shaken together, running over upon his church. Point number three, closing. The characteristics of true and false lovers. Look, look again at what it says in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. Everyone who displays that agape love has been born of God and knows God. They know God. They don't just know of God. It's impossible on this side of eternity to completely understand and comprehend and exhaust all that God is. But the true Christian has a much deeper understanding and appreciation, a much understands and loves and knows God on a much deeper level than the one that just shows up to church on holidays or when they're going to get something. The true child of God knows God better than someone who just merely professes to know him with their lips and has no proof in their life to back up their claim. And we won't always get it right. We won't always love God the way that he deserves to be loved. We're going to come up with excuses. 
We're going to pile them up for why we can't do this and why we can't do that for God. And God is always going to get shortchanged when it comes to us. But our desire should be to love God and love his people. And that's a symptom that's going to be evident in the life of every true believer. Everyone who has been saved in the past is going to give evidence of that salvation in the present. The folks that don't, this passage is very clear and very cut to the chase. They're not Christians, no matter what they may say. The Pharisees in Jesus' day said that, uh, along with the false teachers in John's uh, day, claimed to know about God. And they did know a lot about God, but they really did not know God. Not in that deep, intimate, relational way that God created us to have. God created mankind in his image, and because of the fall, sin and the sin curse, that design has been dimmed, it's been broken. There is a saying that goes like this, born once and you will die twice. Born twice and you will only die once. The first birth is the natural birth, that's how we all come into the world. Everyone who lives or has ever lived experiences that. But the second birth is the spiritual birth. It is the born again that Jesus told Nicodemus about in John 3. If you only experience the first birth, you will die twice. You will die the physical death in this life, and then you will die the second death at the judgment when God condemns all sinners to, uh, forever in hell. If you are born twice, you will only die once. You will die in this life, and then you will never, ever die again. And to be quite honest, you will be more alive then than you are right now. So putting all that in context of love, born just once, that love, the love will be selfish. A person may help, a person may do things for others, but it's rooted, always will be rooted in self. What can I get out of this? What can I get out of helping those people? What can those people do for me that I am helping? How great will people think of me for all that I do? Born twice manifests selfless love. The person lives a life that says, I love people and I do for people just because I love them and they have a need. I love the church that Christ died for and I want to be used of God to meet needs and to further His kingdom and I want God to get the glory out of all of it. Which one are you? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for Your love. You have truly loved us above all that we could ever, ever deserve. Lord, help us, the people that know Christ as Savior, to be people that mirror that love in a true agape fashion. That we see it as reasonable service. We see it as obedience to your command. But we see it as a great privilege. To love the very church that you died to save and to love the world around us as ourself. And the first Christian experience that we all had is that initial experience that cries out to God for the salvation of our soul. Help us to love our neighbor so that they would experience that as well.
All these things we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.